I'm Chris from Play Comics, a show where we look at video games based on comic properties and how well they stick to that source material, a part of the Gunna Geek Network, just like the show you're checking out now. Shows on the network are individually owned, and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other astonishingly geeky shows at GunnaGeekNetwork.com. This is the official GunnaGeek.com show. Each week, we run down the latest news and happenings in the world of geek. These are your hosts for the show, Stephen, Chris, and SP. Welcome to an all-new episode of the official GunnaGeek.com show. I am Stephen John Drew, and with me, of course, is Chris Farrell. Howdy, folks. I'm also pleased to say that you don't know who he is. Well, actually, that's not true, because he's the star of the show. He's SP. I'm so glad that you remembered your contractual obligations to say that I am the star of the show, where I'm really not, but it's in the contract, and we got to abide by the contract. The contract is there for a reason, which doesn't exist, actually. Uh, But yes, we're here to talk about geeky things, and if you didn't know this, we're part of the Gunna Geek Network. The Gunna Geek Network has a bunch of amazing geeky content on there. You should check that out at gunnageek.com. I think we should just get into the news this week. Let's just do it right now. SP. Yes. Last week, I shared a new piece of knowledge that I learned about you which was the fact that you like space. And I want to go and share something new that I learned about Chris Farrell. And I don't know if you know this, but Chris Farrell loves Zack Snyder. He thinks that he is one of the greatest, greatest film creators of all time. And I think he's quoted as saying the Justice League Snyder Cut is going to be better than any other movie ever, end quote. I think Zach brings the pretty, right? So four hours of prettiness is what we all signed up for when we were watching Justice League and we just didn't get our fill of it and we needed more of it. And I think that a person like Chris, who loves the plot and the storylines as well, will get so much more of enjoyment out of a Chris Schneider four-hour cut. So it's not only pretty, but it's going to be better story. Which takes us to this week's news point, which is all about the Zack Snyder cut that has been coming for a while. We heard about this uh, last year, that they were going to be doing the Zack Snyder cut of the Justice League. And we also had heard that they were not only doing the cut, they were actually filming some additional uh, sequences and things like that. And I've long, long dogged on the fact that this is not the movie that would have been because it was mostly done filming when Zack Snyder had to leave and and yet he has to come back and do a whole bunch of new things. And then it came out, of course, that he also was going to be doing it in multiple parts and it was going to be a multi-release series. And then I'm like, well, there you go. That's just not the same situation. That can't be if it's a multi-part thing. Well, guess what? This weekend, it actually came out 
that apparently is not multi-part anymore, contrary to being previously announced, because he was asked the following, quote, so is this still a series or a one-shot watch of a movie, end quote, to which he replied, one shot. So it does appear that this is back to being a four-hour movie, which, for those of you following along at home, was very likely not going to be in the theaters at four hours long. So there's no way that this is going to be anything close to what we would have gotten had he been able to finish the film because there's not a chance that they would have let you release a four-hour movie. How long was Avengers? Four hours. Which which one? (laughs) The most recent. Endgame? Yeah, it was like two. It was like three and a half hours. Close to three, wasn't it? It it wasn't. I don't think it cracked the three-hour mark. I think it was close yeah, to You're it. probably right. But I mean, Endgame and it was, Infinity okay. War it was, was three basically... Hour, three hours and two minutes. I stand corrected. It cracked okay. it. But I mean, still, it was okay. basically one movie between the two. So that's like a six-hour movie. This was not going to be one four-hour movie. Because people were complaining about three hours and two minutes. And I know it's only 58 minutes more to go up to four hours. That is a long time. It was not going to go in four hours. Uh, all right. So I got a few things to say about this. First of all, you, you go to Peter Jackson with the Lord of the Rings and, you know, he really blew up those long editions after the fact. So maybe this is ultimately Zack Snyder's blow up edition of Lord of the Rings with the Justice League. Also, didn't our, our very own, you know, our beloved George Lucas blow up the original movies to throw in additional things. Not that bad, but he made it longer to, to fit other things in there. And he's been tweaking with them forever. One could argue he's still tweaking them with Disney, but in any event, I could see Zack Snyder wanting this to be four hours, but you're right. It wouldn't have been in theaters. It would have been after the fact. And even the two movie thing, as I sit here and think about it, as you give the Avengers example, you might not have liked the Avengers um, Infinity War ending SB, but there did not. There was a very clear arc to that movie independent of the second movie that they they went together. And so, again, hypothetically, if this was going to be split up to two two hour movies, then we would need to see it presented in that because one four hour movie would feel very different than two two hour movies. So. Again, I I call BS and say this is another thing where he's seen the hate and he's seen the fans saying we want the Snyder Cut because we don't know good filmmaking and he's just playing into it. I do have another question, I guess, because I haven't actually read this story. I've just seen the headlines <laughs> yeah. to this whole thing because I don't want to read a story about it. But the other thing is, is if he's calling it a one shot. It was meant to be put together eventually into one long movie, right? It wasn't meant to be just four one-hour things. I mean, they were going to show it in four one-hour slots, episodes, whatever, but then they were going to combine it in the end, right? My understanding was this was something coming from the management side of the house, which was, we'll split it up into four installments, and that's a draw at HBO Max. Whether they made an agreement with Zack Snyder or not, I don't know. it is what it is. It's going to be four hours of this, and some people are going to love it and are super excited. Other people, like myself, really just couldn't care less. And honestly, here's the approach I've taken on. Joking aside, like my getting up and walking away was a gimmick. It was just for fun. <laughs> I, I don't, 
I don't care one way or another anymore. I don't have the energy to get upset about the Snyder Cut fanboys winning because they whined for years. I don't have the energy to be excited for it because it's a road to nowhere. If you've seen all of the conversation from the folks that are heading up the DC universe at this point in time, they've basically said, yeah, we have no plans to do anything else with Jet with uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League universe when this is done. So it's a one-off. It's going to basically show all the seeds he was supposedly going to plant for the grim, dark version of the DC universe that he was making, and it's going to lead nowhere. So, okay, great. You're getting this movie, this definitive cut of what it was supposed to be, but it doesn't matter because none of that stuff is going to happen going forward. I just, I don't think I have the energy to care because it doesn't mean anything in the grand scheme of things. It's an Elseworld tale at this point. If it is a one shot and you watch it on your computer and you use a program to speed up the playback, you could watch it at two times speed and it still is only going to take two hours. That's true. That's, that, that's a very astute observation. Look, I've had my concerns over the Snyder cut of things, not necessarily because I feel like Zack Snyder shouldn't get a chance to potentially finish his film because the circumstances were tragic why he didn't get to do what he wanted to do. But they moved on. Everyone agreed. They moved on, did other stuff, finished it a different way. And then you had a bunch of people whine and cry about it on the Internet for years. And they caved and decided, oh, we're going to release the Snyder cut now, which I think sets a terrible precedent. What's going to happen now? People whine and cry because they don't like one of the Star Wars. Hey, I was one of those ones that whined and cried about some of the sequel trilogy stuff because I didn't like it. But I wasn't sitting there going, remake it or release the Colin Trevorrow version of Episode 9, not the J.J. Abrams one. Or remember that ridiculous release the J.J. cut hashtag that was going around too because they believed that much like Zack Snyder, J.J. left a bunch of stuff on the film room floor that would have made that movie good. No, this, this is just a bunch of people and some had pure intentions. But a bunch of people that bitched, moaned, cried on the internet, made fools of themselves, and won in the end. And that's what really annoys me the most about this, is the negative aspects of this release the Snyder Cut format, of, or uh, movement, excuse me, that won. And now they're going to be like, ha ha, we trolled, we won, we got this. And now they're going to expect more of it going forward. And that's just not how this works. If you don't like how a movie comes out or a comic works out, it is what it is. You wait until they retcon it, and then you're good to go. Yeah. Can I just say, though, that um, if we're going to direct our efforts towards changing a movie and the end of the movie, I think that we've missed the opportunity here. I personally did not like how Titanic ended. I think that it would have been a lot better if the ship had survived. There you go. <laughs> or the door held two people. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never let go, shove. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, Chris, I have a, an honest question, and I know our listeners are going to have this question. Sure. Uh, a lot of people didn't like the DC universe for, for a lot of different reasons. I mean, I know we're still in it because we just had Wonder Woman 84 come out, which is technically part of the same universe. But if, if you wanted to fix it after, or yeah, let's go after Justice League. If you wanted to fix the DC EU, if that's what we're going to call it, after Justice League, what would you have done differently? And what would you do that hasn't been done yet to fix the DCEU? Embrace the aspects that worked, like Shazam, I thought was delightful. It was great. They realized you don't have to try and make a grim, dark superhero movie. And th this has always been my problem. And I'm not trying to take a shot at Zack Snyder, but this is how I feel about him as a filmmaker. He makes pretty movies, but not good. And they're always grim, dark. 
And Superman, the big blue Boy Scout, he's not a grimdark character. So I've had problems with since Man of Steel with his approach towards the DC universe. And say what you want about Joss Whedon, he gets Superman. Like the Superman we get, you can tell what was written by Joss Whedon and what was written by Zack Snyder's team in Justice League. There's cognitive dissonance there because you look at it and you're like, this is the big blue Boy Scout. And this is me sad, Martha, kind of thing. (laughs) I mean, and I'm oversimplifying, but I I feel like they tried- No, I think that was the (laughs) essence of the movie. (laughs) I mean, in all seriousness, though, I think they tried too hard to try and embrace- the grim, dark aspect, because that's what we got in Chris Nolan's Batman movies. Right. Like, okay, let's apply that to Superman. Well, Superman's not the character you do that with, because Superman's all about hope, making people want to be better. The strongest man in the world, doing everything he can to try and help the little man, and can't always do everything right. There's there's so many things I just don't think he ever got about Superman, other than the fact that he's incredibly powerful. And I think that set them off on the wrong foot. And I think you... If you want to take one of the big three and feature them, I think Patty Jenkins did a great job with Wonder Woman. Now, yes. Act 3, we can all say, fell apart a little bit. and She pretty much said that was uh, interference on high that caused Act 3 to go how it did. And to be fair, I haven't seen Wonder Woman 84 yet. But I think Patty Jenkins has a really good understanding of Diana Prince and has established a really good rapport with Gal Gadot in how to portray that character on the big screen. And again, was Wonder Woman grimdark? No. There were dark elements, sure. But they embraced the fact that Diana is an icon. People look up to her. People gravitate to her because of the inherent goodness that she is wanting to do right and things like that. And that's kind of what you have to do. And we'll compare Marvel to DC because there's comparisons can be made there. Marvel, look at everything in the MCU. Did they ever really lean super hard into Grimdark? No, they had dark moments. Bucky killing Tony's parents, things like that. People dying on screen in painful, horrific ways. Yes, but they never made it all about, oh, we're going to have these muted dark palettes and everyone's sad and angsty because (laughs) I don't know that that necessarily works very well for these superheroes that we've established because that's not what you expect when you talk about Superman, Captain America, Spider-Man, things like that. If you want to make superheroes like that, make your own superheroes like that or or go to a product that has superheroes of that type and do it versus trying to force... Clark Kent, Kal-El, into a mold that doesn't fit. I was going to say, Batman is great for brooding. There there you go. In, the, in Batman, you can get away with grim dark because of the nature of it. Because let's look at all the Batman movies we've had. Yeah. The Burton movies, they were gothic dark. Mm-hmm. And they were fun. And it worked. The Schumacher ones, you had Amazing. a changing Number tone. number one film creation of all time. So... Batman Forever, I think, would be a lot better if they put the cutout they wanted to, but that's neither here nor there. (laughs) But it was a different feel, and there were dark elements, but they made it more fun and lighthearted. But then you go in and pivot into the Nolan Batman movies, and you could argue those movies aren't necessarily a Batman movie. They're a movie about Bruce Wayne, and then more importantly, the surrounding characters around him when you get to the two sequels. The Joker is the main character of The Dark Knight. Let's be honest here. Yeah. The Joker is the fixture. That's who people gravitate to. Batman's the one that's living in the Joker's world and overcomes him in the end. You said something that you kind of glossed over. And I, to be honest with you, I don't really care about DC anymore because it's just not my cup of tea for a variety of different reasons. So I haven't really followed the news. I did watch Wonder Woman 84. You said that Act 3 fell apart, which I would agree with. Wonder Woman having- 1, the first Wonder Woman. I haven't seen 84 yet. The first Wonder Woman right, I said but, Act but, 3 fell apart. Oh, uh, you're yeah. saying that, well, uh, there's been similarities with the 
with Wonder Woman 84 (laughs) as well. So that's, I guess, where my question was coming from. If there was word out that Act 3 fell apart because of interference from on high, and I hadn't seen any stories upon that, but I hadn't been looking either. So, Mm -hmm. okay. No, it was Wonder Woman 1, where she kind of pretty much said that she had a different ending in mind, but the execs wanted the big fight between Diana and Ares in the end of Wonder Woman 1 that she wasn't really wanting to do. So that's why it felt so different than the first two acts of the movie, which be, if you go back and rewatch, you can sort of see it now. It'd be kind of like Captain America having the fight with Thanos at the end of Captain America, the first Avenger. Wait, he didn't? <laughs> he, he fought a Greek dude named Thanos there, not Thanos as in uh, uh, the Titan. Gotcha. So <laughs> bottom line, when it's time to watch this four hour movie of darkness, we need to do a little offset put on some pink slippers and sit down and uh, turn on all the lights with warm pink tones and just like give, give ourselves a real uplifting atmosphere as we watch it to offset some of this darkness. I'll give you a little spoiler. I do not own pink slippers ben, and I do not intend on owning pink slippers. It's your loss. Um, speaking of loss, let's talk about cyberpunk. Uh, what's going on over there in cyberpunk world this time? So I know I talked about CD Projekt Red's Cyberpunk 2077 a little bit last time, but we had a really good news article come out from uh, Bloomberg written by Jason Shire, who you might know from Kotaku and other uh, former video game blogs and things like that. He has been pretty on top of the development cycle for CD Projekt Red's game. And I kind of want to bring up some of the stuff that came up in that article because I think it's relevant to a shift we've started to see in the video game industry as a whole. And side note right now, uh, Cyberpunk 2077 is on sale for 30 bucks on Xbox and PlayStation 4. It's been out less than a month, and I'm sitting here going, holy crap, price dropped real fast and when people started up not liking the game. That being said, I've put 68 hours into the game, beaten it, and I had a good enough time, but I can understand why some people didn't. So let's talk about Jason's article that was posted on Bloomberg. He spoke to close to 20 different developers, both current employees and developers that have moved on from the company, CD Projekt Red, and revealed that They kind of revealed what their time was like working on Cyberpunk 2077, how chaotic the process was behind closed doors, and probably what the biggest bombshell was is they revealed that the impressive demo we saw at E3 in 2018, which was really cool, got a lot of hype. I think it had something like 28 million views on YouTube last I checked. Yeah, it was fake, and development on the game didn't actually begin until 2016, despite them announcing it back in 2012. Yeah, so according to Bloomberg's article, the development process for Cyberpunk 2077 leading up to the video we saw was marred by unchecked ambition, poor planning, and technical shortcomings. So what was the major downfall? It was effectively an unrealistic timeline that was back, excuse me, that was backed less by actual planning and more upon relying upon what they called their CD Projekt Red magic that led to a turnaround for the Witcher series. And in fact, in the article, they said at times, when they were having difficulty and the schedule looked bad, they would say something effective. Oh, we'll be okay. We made The Witcher 3. The Witcher 3 is a really good game, by the way. Unlike The Witcher, though, uh, the restorative process of bringing Cyberpunk 2077 to the level promised as in the original videos, it's kind of still in progress. And a lot of people have lost faith in the company. It's, hmm. it's not good right now, guys. People are bummed. So the amount of time developing the game itself was shorter than most people thought. Like they mentioned in the article, Cyberpunk was originally announced at E3 in 2012. According to Jason's report, development did not begin until 2016, four years following that reveal, in part because they were still releasing 
DLC and fixes for The Witcher at that point in time. With a projected release date of 2020, the timeline to develop the new most ambitious game ever, as they called it in some of their literature, was less than generous, and it was a period that was rife with poor leadership decisions and a clear lack of direction from on high. Looking back on scrapped content that we saw, such as the ability to have car chases where you could lean out the windows and shoot, you could wall run, you could use your mantis blades, which are blades that pop out of your forearms like a pragmantis blade, to hang off of walls and drop on people. A lot of these things were cut out because they were things that were promised to look cool, and then they realized the development and making it was tough to do. And a lot of these really cool elements are things we saw in that 2018 demo where a lot of people were going, oh my God, this looks amazing. This game is going to live up to all the hype. And yeah, like we mentioned, that demo was fake. It was, it was called live gameplay during the presentation, but it turns out that it was all fake. It was basically a video with some quick time interactions and they put some text on screen that said it was not representative of the final game. So technically they didn't lie, but it's an ethically gray area. Let's talk about some of the other issues. And it's this is a problem with the game industry as a whole. Crunch time. This is when you get closer and closer to release. And in order to hit a release date, you start having developers work excessive hours for sometimes no extra pay and pretty much guilting them into it in some cases. At one point in time, the head of CD Projekt Red had promised there would be no crunch time for Cyberpunk 2077. That went out the window, especially as it missed as they missed their original release or their most recent release date, which I believe was in May, but then got pushed to December when they did actually release. Uh, Jason spoke to a former developer who worked in the audio side of the house, and he was quoted in the article saying, there were times when I would crunch up to 13 hours a day. A little bit over that was my record probably, and I would do five days a week working like that. I have some friends who lost their families because of that sort of shenanigans. Another massive contributor to the long working hours and something that's not uncommon is the fact that they were understaffed. And despite the increase in workload and ambition, they didn't hire a bunch of new folks. Because if you're familiar with this game, it's supposed to be an open world RPG that also kind of blended a lot of those open world driving elements you would see in the Grand Theft Auto series that Rockstar has kind of pioneered and arguably is the best at at this point in time, but has a huge staff to do it and a lot of back history, which they didn't have on the CD Projekt Red's team. So there was an issue with crunch. There was an issue with the schedule. There was an issue that they, you know, kind of lied to us by saying things that would come in the game. Never really did. It was announced in this article that the police system in this game it's open world. If you shot an innocent person or ran someone over, the police would potentially chase after you. It was tacked on at the very end of the game. And I went, okay, this kind of makes sense because accidents happen in this world. You're in a car chase. You accidentally run someone over. It'll cause the police to come after you. The problem is the police don't just like drive up out of somewhere to start chasing you. They spawn right behind you and then chase you. Now, it's easy to get away, I found out. If you just floor it and go straight, eventually they give up. So the, the police system in this game, kind of broken, kind of broken. Uh, going back to the crunch, though, there was one interesting thing that Jason had brought up on his Twitter account. It didn't make the article, but he did post some stuff on Twitter that didn't make it. One CD Projekt Red developer told their manager they didn't want to work overtime. Their CEO had said that would be okay. Fine, the manager said, but one of the other coworkers would just have to work extra hours to make it up for them. A lot of other developers shared the same story. So even when they said they weren't going to have crunch, it was effectively a guilt trip saying, well, if you don't crunch, we're just going to make this guy crunch. 
And it's a problem. This is a reflection of the industry as a whole. We've talked about it a little bit. I think I brought this up talking about both Anthem and Mass Effect Andromeda, which are electronic arts games, yeah. big, big production studio, where a lot of what happened there is they didn't get development started until late because they kept changing their plans for what they wanted to do. They started using a bunch of tech they weren't familiar with trying to make it work. It didn't work out very well. And in Bioware's case, they literally said they were going to rely on the Bioware magic to get them through because Mass Effect 2, Mass Effect 3, some of the Dragon Age games, they came up to the very wire, but they got them out and they were really good and highly reviewed. So they sort of started buying into their own hype. So the problem we're seeing here is crunch is becoming insane because the schedules are shortening because the big studios want to get these games out to make a bunch of money. And then they're not working quite right. And then we get in CD Projekt Red's case, a timeline they've put out of how they're going to fix the game going forward for everyone. And this is a multi-year effort they're going to have to put into it, starting with a large patch that's supposed to drop sometime in the next eight days as we record this, another patch in February that's supposed to drop to make things work, and then starting on their roadmap for free DLC, next-gen upgrades, multiplayer updates. They've got a lot of stuff to fix. And I think the problem is it's broken already. And as some other YouTubers have put it, uh, uh, Wood Hawker, who runs the Beat'em Ups channel, did like a 50-minute review of Cyberpunk 2077. He's someone who'd been excited for it since it was announced. And he basically came out in the end and said, they lied to us. All of these things they promised, I don't know how you just patch that into the game because the framework isn't there. So while I enjoyed my time with the game, I think it's because I wasn't one of those folks that starting in 2012 was super hyped and excited for it. I was one of those folks that about two years out went, oh, this game looks pretty cool. I probably want to play that. So I didn't have that level of hype and expectation built up to then get disappointed by management issues, timeline issues, scope creep, crunch, things like that. I don't know how you fix this in the industry, but it's obviously a problem now when we've seen it with multiple game releases coming out. And I, I just don't know what to do, but it, it, this is a really good article if you have a chance, go check it out. Uh, Jason Shire wrote it. You can find it on Bloomberg. The only thing I would mention to you is Bloomberg only lets you read four free articles a month. I'm already out of my four free articles <laughs> because I've read a lot of his content and went, hmm, maybe I should pay for Bloomberg content now because I'm really enjoying <laughs> Jason's work. <laughs> okay, so let's start with the whole crunch thing. Yes, it's a huge problem. We have talked about it before on here, and I agree. It's something that needs to be solved with the whole industry. However, it also ties nicely into the next point I'm going to make, which is that, and listen to me, if, if, if you are one of these people, listen very carefully. If you think that what they have told you is coming to Cyberpunk 2077, you are wrong. If you think it's actually going to happen, because not only did we start off with an example that Chris was saying where they had presented something as game footage, which was not true. It was fake. It was misleading. They also said in the same discussion that they were not going to have crunch. And again, they had crunch. But go back a couple weeks. And what were we talking about as well? Where they said they went and they gave an example of the game to everybody. And they barred the reviewers from saying this was only played on the PC. And they had to not specifically disclose that. So again, it was shady practices as well with that. 
also on that, they were not allowed to use their own gameplay footage until the game was officially out. They could right. only use footage provided by CD Projekt Red. Right. So a lot of folks like IGN put their original report out and said, come back on release date. We'll have a different cut with our own footage in there. Yeah. So like they have more than one history of BSing and borderline flat out lying based off of these recent news articles. And so don't believe what they're saying. Set that bar really low. Expect that this crap that you've got right now is what you're getting for the game. And anything beyond that is going to be bonus for you. Like, seriously, don't like, why would anybody continue to believe anything they're saying? Here's the thing. Until now, people trusted them on by and large because of The Witcher 3. It bought them a ton of goodwill because it was such a good long game with a bunch of free DLC and some DLC that you people argue is better than the game itself. So they had a lot of goodwill built up. And part of their problem is the way they marketed this game, which was it's going to be, it's going to change the genre. Everything's going to change about it. It's going to be the greatest game ever. Here's the kind of stuff we're going to do. And then when they started removing that kind of stuff, it wasn't until like months before the game came out. They're like, oh, wall running's gone. Oh, this element's gone. And you're like, wait, but all of these kind of things were supposed to be in there. And okay, let me make a separate point here. It's not unheard of for things that are promised in games to be removed, but generally they're a bit more upfront about it before the game comes out and you'll find out about it versus a few weeks before a game comes out. And you're like, wait, what? This isn't what was promised. So I, I, part of it is they did not present themselves very well when they were removing things and they kept the hype level way too high because they thought they could fix it because they made The Witcher 3. Honestly, that's the mindset that seems to have come across here is we're going to pull this together at the last second because of everything we've done before, which is a problem. We've seen it now with three AAA titles I'm thinking of off the top of my head where that didn't happen. Apparently, I don't know as much about game development as I thought I might know because I'm unfamiliar with timelines involved in speculating on companies and stuff like that. But the one thing that I will just bring up just because I'm thinking about it is that I am concerned about how you would fund a multi-year game development. A lot of the venture capitalist funds or even R&D funds of existing companies, they don't really project past one year, let alone two years. And then if you have a game that needs to really be figured out over the course of three, four, or five years, that is a long R&D tale. And I'm not sure how you get the financing for that. Vaporware. Apparently. <gasps> so because of that, is it really possible to make games in that sort of timeline? Or is this whole crunch time thing, it's just a factor of the industry that's never going to go away. Depends on who owns you is what I would argue is you can either be a small independent studio and you can take out a bunch of loans to make something happen, hope to hit it big and then continue your dream. Or you can get bought up by one of the big players who believe in what it is you want to do. And we've kind of seen it go both ways. Bioware was kind of on their own, put out some great games, electronic arts bought them. And then everything became a lot more focused on. We have to hit this date consequences be damned. We can fix it later if we need to. It's a tough business and crunch has become acceptable because we want to play games. And honestly, the only way to combat crunch, which isn't going to work, would be to be like, no, I'm not going to buy that game. Yeah. 
You know, it's one of those probably business practices that unfortunately are, are being adopted. But at some point, you know, there there's something that is that catalyst for change because I, I don't know, like, I, I don't think I can get behind the concept of accepting that this is OK, because that's what the business demands. It's not fair to people. So I think part of the reason why this one hits so hard is this was thought to be the exception based off the way they were announcing it. They'd started work in 2012 on it. The leader, the head of CD Projekt Red had promised no crunch time and things like that for years in the way they built up and spun how they were going to do this. And then it started coming out and Jason Schreier, who I've talked about, is the one that kind of started digging in and kind of throwing the BS flag on crunch and things like that. Make, oh, they're totally doing it. But they were promising they were going to change the way it was done. And it didn't happen. So you've got the people that played the game and were disappointed. You've got the people that are a little more clued in as to what might have been going on behind the scenes who played the game that are disappointed also. And it just kind of stacks up and leads to a lot of people coming out with a bad taste in their mouth. But like I said, it's endemic of the games industry as a whole right now. And I don't know who controls those crunch levels. Like, for instance, I haven't heard a ton of bad things about like Insomniac Games, who did Marvel Spider-Man and things like that when it comes to crunch. Supposedly, a lot of the studios that Microsoft bought out to put under Microsoft's new uh, brand, I can't remember, Microsoft Game Studios or whatever they're calling it, supposedly they have actually shifted release dates out by the request of the studios they've bought to alleviate crunch and to make sure things happen. So I don't know. And that, that's why you need people that are, for lack of a better term, investigative reporters in the games industry that can kind of dig these things up and bring them to light to be like, hey, here's the problem with what we're seeing in this industry. We need to figure out some way to address it. And then also to celebrate people who are doing it the right way. Well, I think you said it best, which was that it leaves you with a bad taste in your mouth, which... Because it's called Crunch, I have to say, is right in line with Nestle's Crunch Bar, which also leaves you with a bad taste in your mouth. I was going to say Captain Crunch, but that works too. Captain Crunch is good, okay? No, Captain Crunch is gross. It tears up your mouth. (laughs) All right, well, moving on to the next (laughs) news points, because SP has a couple things about the SN9 and the ALS test. Did I get that right? No, you did not. You were Uh, talking about the Artemis SLS and uh SpaceX SN9. Now, tell me why I'm wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So we're going to talk about SpaceX SN9 first. Uh, Last week, I talked about what was going on with both of these rockets and Starship SN9 serial number nine prototype. I was speculating might launch, but I also speculated that there might be some test fires. So here's what happened. We didn't get an SN9 launch this past week. We did get several static test fires of the SN9 3 Raptor engine grouping, as I speculated. On Wednesday, January 13th, 2021, SpaceX performed not one, not two, but three static test fires of SN9 in just one day. Now, Elon Musk said today at SpaceX is about practicing Starship engine starts. Ship is held down by massive pins while engines are fired. Two starts completed, about to try a third. Elon Musk then said after the third one was all three static fires completed and no RUDs. And for those of you keeping score at home, RUD means rapid unplanned disassembly. So yes, SN9 was still in one piece. Seems pretty harsh that they banned Paul Rudd from coming by. I mean, I would too. He's got a... He's he's a national treasure. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Idiocracy, right? Yeah. 
Unfortunately, during the test, there were a few speed bumps and two of the three Raptor engines on board SN9 are slated for repairs. Elon Musk tweeted that the engines would be swapped out, and then he went on to mention, quote, we're making major improvements to ease of engine swap. Needs to be a few hours at most, unquote. Elon was was referencing the rapid turnaround time required to sustain massive Starship operations. If you got about a thousand of those ships, it's like an airport. It is not like a one shot. And then a few days later, you launch another one. You're talking about hours turnaround time with Starship. So Elon Musk went on to mention, this is all on Twitter, by the way, went on to mention the need for additional static test fires before the launch of SN9. Now, I checked the Boca Chica notums, and yes, I did say Boca Chica, so go ahead and take a drink. And there are several notums for the SpaceX Brownsville, Texas area. Uh, One basically goes all week. It's from, uh, I believe it was from the, the, the 16th all the way through the 21st, but then there is specific ones from the 19th, the 20th, and the 21st of January, 2021. So what I think they're going to do is they swapped out the engines, which actually went, it's, they're already done. They're already swapped out. They were planning on a static fire test today as we're recording this. I don't think that happened, but I don't know for sure. So I'd expect tomorrow there to be a static test and possibly others because they did four before SN8. We'll see how many they need for SN9. And then they'll launch hopefully sometime later on this week. And and hopefully the engine swap out uh, was the last thing to do. And for those of you thinking, you know, how difficult it is to do an engine swap, these things produce tens of thousands of pounds of thrust. So it's pretty intricate, you know, the hoses that need to go in and stuff like that. But in the bottom line, it's pretty simple. You know, thrust goes into the nozzle and it goes to the throat of the nozzle and it goes out. And yeah, that that's it. Do you think that there's like a designated person that deals with the hoses? Like you might call them the hoser. It depends on how many hoses there are and and whatever. I mean, you saw the SN8 test and you saw how red hot that whole <laughs> thing got. Yes. So I, I wouldn't want to be the hoser that got that wrong because then it'd blow up. So bottom line with this here, though, the SN9 test did not go as rapidly as you thought it was going to last week. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. Which is very kind of Elon because he knows you were very worried about covering that in this week's Gonna Geek show. So it's nice that he paced himself a bit for you. I don't think I had anything to do with it. (laughs) He's pretty selective on who he interacts with on Twitter. You have to get his attention over the course of a long time. And I just don't spend that much time on Twitter. So I, me and Elon are not Twitter buddies. I follow him. He doesn't follow me. I mean, that's the way it goes. (laughs) As with most people on Twitter following him. Uh, What about SLS? Which I fixed the sidebar for those who are watching the video side of things. That is awesome that you're able to do that on the fly. SLS, of course, is the NASA version of Starship. It is part of the Artemis program, which is going to bring NASA back to the moon tentatively by the end of 2024, but with a change of administration and with delays in SLS and Orion, which are both part of Artemis. We'll see what happens there. Last week, though, SLS went underwent a four-engine test fire And it was another static fire. It wasn't the rocket. It was just the engines. 
They were in the big test stand at Stennis Space Center in Mississippi. That's a NASA facility there. And it was known as a green run trust. And I try to get a definition of green run. And basically, it's this whole test plan to get SLS up on the pad and to launch in 2021. And the rocket engines, by the way, I don't know if I've mentioned it before on this show, but they're leftover space shuttle engines. They're the RS-25 engines from active space shuttles that NASA had laying around. So they're going to use them for the initial SLS boosters. I don't know if they're going to change out rocket engines or they're going to have to develop more because they're not reusable like space, like Starship is SpaceX. They're a one and done. I, I don't know if they'll fish them out of the ocean and be able to refurbish them or not, but they are the RS-25 engines that all four of them, by the way, that were tested had flown in space on the space shuttle before. Now, during the test, engine number four experienced a main component failure or MCF at about the 30 or at about the 60 second mark. It's not known if enough data was gathered during the test to continue on with the program. That's the official response. However, this is SP's response. Previous statements put that time frame at the one at the 252nd mark for them to get enough data. Also, the RD-25s in the 60 seconds that they fired did not have a chance to gimbal at all during the test. That means they didn't have a chance to move around and uh, change their thrust direction. These two facts lead me to believe, and I want to stress this is SP's opinion, this is my opinion, that an additional static fire will be needed to be accomplished before proceeding on with the next step in SLS development. Now, according to the post-test press conference, NASA and Boeing are taking several days to review the test data before recommending a path forward to proceed. So they don't know yet, and SP's uh, assessment is, yeah, we're going to see another test. I don't know what the time frame of that test would be either, but it might push the SLS development back far enough so that a mission to the moon would not happen by 2024. Uh, first off, RD-25, that's R2-D2's cousin. Is that correct? Kind of looks like R2-T2. There's no blue, but, you know, it, there's a dome. And, you know, he's got you know, R2-D2 has got those rockets that come out of his side arms and stuff. Second, Boeing having issues. Shocked, am I? Hey, they got that 737 back in the air. In some places in the world. It's flying internationally. In some places in the world. Uh, well, internationally <laughs> is the world. And so, some aviation bodies have approved it. Some have not. Anywho, uh, I just wanted to take the shot at Boeing because uh, it seems like they're just falling behind in this whole situation. And uh, do you think that the mission to the moon could get canceled if they were delayed long enough? Do you think the next administration <sighs> could I, possibly go, eh, let's redirect? I don't think so, because I think both Russia and China are aiming to get back to the moon. And I think it is within the United States and quite frankly, within Canada's best interest for the SLS to work to get back to the moon. So, no, I don't think it'll be canceled. All right. Moving on to the next news point here. Let's talk all about custom. I won't say it. A word. You know the A word I'm saying. A-L-E-X-A. This is something that uh, I came across this past weekend and was a little bit surprised because I didn't know that this was happening. 
Amazon is apparently looking to offer their A-word infrastructure, basically, the building blocks of their voice assistant to other vendors to be built upon. And the first big company that is taking them up on this is Fiat Chrysler. Apparently, they are looking to take the Amazon Assistant and make it into their own little platform sort of thing that will go into their vehicles. Now, apparently, when this happens and the company agrees to to building off of this, they're going to be able to customize the underlying system in there, which includes their own custom wake word and other capabilities of the Amazon voice assistant, which will probably not be called the Amazon voice assistant. It'll probably be called something stupid powered by Amazon or something like that. But my question with this, because not only was I curious about this because I hadn't heard about this whole program, but the fact that we've got Fiat Chrysler here looking to get into this, How do you guys think that this might potentially impact Android Auto and Apple CarPlay if all of a sudden manufacturers start to do this? Or the reverse, what do you think that Apple CarPlay or Android Auto might have on this sort of concept of companies getting back into their own voice assistant in their cars and things like that? Because I felt like we were past that and our, our ship had sailed on that. And it was more accepting like people will just use their phones. But I'm kind of curious, what do you think about this whole potential of an established voice assistant that works like the Amazon A-word being put into vehicles like this, but with a makeover? Well, we're already seeing it. Uh, but so this, for, this, is, not... this is though different because, again, this is a un- technically a unique product built on Amazon. Right. So it's so... back to a third party integration. Or are, are manufacturers unique? Not sorry, not a third party. A so they're just basically proprietor. using API calls to do what they want. They build their own software to hook in. Yes, and on the front, it will be a different product. Is what I, I I'm reading about this. You know how how terrible uh, head unit head units are in pretty much any car, and why everyone uses Android Auto or Apple CarPlay because they're pretty much garbage uh, now. I'm more intrigued by, uh, are you familiar with the Google Automotive that's out there that is on like the Polestar 2 vehicle now, which is a Google vehicle OS that they have developed? The only Polestar I know is you guys in my dreams. (laughs) No, not going to touch that. Continue. Definitely not going to touch that pole. <laughs> it's not like my assistant accidentally triggered when I said the G word there and I was hitting the mute button until it was done talking. It's not like that at all. <laughs> so, so okay. So, so basically, do you think that this is a silly thing? Is that what you're saying? Because you just took the shot against so, the, the car companies. Uh, okay. From a Fiat Chrysler perspective, I think it's an interesting way to try and make their head units be better. Because a customer complaint that is generally across the board is if you're a Ford driver, oh, Ford Sync software sucks. If you're a Subaru driver, oh, the new touchscreen, the OS that runs it sucks. I always use my phone's automotive equivalent. So if they're able to build something that can leverage Amazon's capabilities, but not be terrible, that they can update in a timely manner, I think that's great. But I don't think it's going to be as easy for them to keep updated 
because whatever they're building is not just a smart assistant. It also has to control, say, HVAC and all these other things in the car. And I think that's where the hooks become problematic. And that's where I think the approach we're seeing with the uh, Google's automotive approach, which is they have a whole OS that you can integrate that can run all these things in your car. And if you haven't seen it yet, go check out on YouTube some of the videos on the Polestar 2, which is an electric vehicle that is made in China by a subsidiary of Volvo, I believe it is. It runs that Google Automotive OS on board where they pretty much say, okay, here you hook all these things into it and it'll do it for you. So they hook in the HVAC controls and it's all controlled through that. I tend to be a bit more interested in that than I would be in someone building their own stuff to then hook into Amazon's cloud services. Because again, that's also going to rely on outside connectivity to make that happen. Well, that's the next part I was going to bring up here, actually, is because we've seen the um, A-word auto, the Echo auto, um, and that depends on the internet. So I'm curious to see where this goes in a vehicle, which will not always have an internet connection. If Yes or no. I mean, like if it's the sole unit, you can't bank on it because I, I know I'm too cheap to pay for internet. But we're starting to get to a place now where some of these folks are looking at how do I make this connected car experience better, which is they might give you the the free connectivity to basically run the basics. And if you want to do okay. extra stuff, then you would pay an additional data fee. Because I think Tesla is doing something similar. They have their premium data services now versus everything used to be under one banner. And you don't necessarily have to pay for the premium version to get everything. So I think we might be getting to a point where wireless connectivity is prevalent enough that you don't necessarily have to have your cell phone be that link to reach back out. You could just put a cellular modem in one of these vehicles. Like my car has a cellular modem. I've never turned it on, but it has one. I burned through my data playing one YouTube video and I haven't added any (laughs) since then. (laughs) I could have gotten unlimited data in my car for 20 bucks a month. And I was sitting there going, well, if it's fast enough, I could just turn off the data at my house and just have my car hotspotting all the time. (laughs) (laughs) SP, what's your thoughts? First of all, Chris, that would work provided that your car would be able to get the internet in, like, say it's parked in the garage and you have a medical Mm -hmm. garage that would act like a Faraday cage. Correct. That's where it'd be problematic. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, I've got a few things to say. First of all, I'm not sure what I was watching, to be honest with you. It could have been the news, could have been some sports ball game. I I don't know what it was, but I saw a commercial uh, for a Ram truck. And they were touting the first ever 10-inch screen in a truck. And I was thinking, that can't be right because my Jeep, which is a 2017, has a 13-inch screen, I believe. It's at least 10-inch. I'll I'll have to go look at it again since 2017. Maybe they're technically right. It's the first 10-inch. People have done 13s. They've done 9s. They've done 11s. But it's the first 10. (laughs) Yeah, that could be it. And then I... I have to choke about all these awards that these car companies put on their ads because the awards exist basically to give that car company the award. So it's it's not really a all-encompassing award for the entire automotive industry. It's a, a paid-for award so that they can then say, hey, we won an award sort of thing. I mean, we could start the same thing for Gonna Geek and have the, hey, we had the Gonna Geek Award for the best podcast in 2021, it paid for by Gonna Geek sort of thing. So, yeah. Why would anybody make their own awards up? That's just I silly. Know. Yeah. Yeah. Just to feel self important, I guess. And the Mercedes, I believe, came out and they said they were going to do a complete digital dashboard. And by that, I mean like the, the entire dashboard is a glass 
dashboard. It's not like a dashboard with a screen in it or part of the screen works. It's the entire dashboard is going to be uh, capable of projecting some sort of digital uh, thing that you could read or or whatever. And we have the Sony and Apple, the rumored, I should say, the Sony and Apple cars. They're companies that are actually going to make cars, although there's speculation on whether they're just going to build capabilities to throw in cards, a lot like what Amazon just threw in there. Uh, so it's really hard to say where the automotive industry is going to end up. There's just a lot of possibilities out there, and it's going to be a factor of what the market is going to bear right now. There's a lot of chip unavailability, and it is causing car production issues where these big automotive companies are going to have to shut down or greatly reduce the amount of cars that they can produce because they just can't get the chips to go in there. So that's a 2020-2021 problem right now, but I don't know what that means for these big companies. However, since we were talking about AIs, I want to specifically say, wasn't it just like one year ago where all these AIs were going to start to be interoperable and it doesn't matter which one that you use? And if that's the case, it really doesn't matter what's in the car. If it links to something else, like through your phone or something, it really doesn't matter. Yeah, companies lie. No. <laughs> well, I look forward to finding out what AI you come up with, SB, because that's the takeaway I'm going to take from this whole thing here. Oh, you thinking that I'm developing an AI? Yeah. I'm, no, no, no. I welcome my AI overlords, <laughs> and I will be the first one that's torched by Skynet or whatever it's called. All right, well, moving on to our second-to-last news point of the night. Chris, six seasons, Anna? A video game. We what? don't get the movie yet. But for those that aren't familiar, Community is a sitcom that started in 20 or 2009, ran until 2015, got their six seasons. And one of the gags in the show was hashtag six seasons in a movie. Well, we didn't get the movie, but we did get a video game. And this is not like an official Sony released video game, but it is an interesting fan released game that is available on Steam now that you can download for free. It is a community themed paintball shooter. The description reads, this is completely free, volunteer-made, multiplayer, satirical parody of common thematic elements found in American broadcast television series. Series is, excuse me. Yes, that's an actual word, which is a riff on a lot of things that we've seen in the show community. I knew this game was coming up because I was following their subreddit where they were talking about development and reading some of the uh, demo runs that they had done. So the arena for these paintball matches is Colorado's Greendale Community College, the setting of the sitcom community. The name is an homage to a line from the show that was eventually turned into a hashtag and rallying cry like we mentioned. They got six seasons, not the movie, but there is the fan-made game that was released on January 9th. If you go on to Steam right now, it had 300 re reviews, excuse me, with a positive rating. There was one post with criticism for the game's competitive metagame and UI, but the rest of the reviews are all community references and gags, which sounds like a lot of fun. I have not had a chance to download and play this game yet. I will probably give it a try this weekend, but a free online paintball shooter that has a fairly active subreddit where the developers are talking to folks about the way ahead. At the very least, it'll be fun just to go explore Greendale Community College like I've only seen on TV screens or other screens of some kind. I mean, I still want the movie, but six seasons in a video game is not too bad. All right. So what do you think? Better than Cyberpunk 2077? 
<laughs> I don't think they're on the same kind of scale. It's not the same type of game. But I would argue that they are probably handling their development approach a bit better, but it's also a lot smaller in scope. And the fact that I don't think they made a bunch of promises of things that would be there that they couldn't deliver on. This is an indie volunteer project. It's not fair to really compare it to one of the big studio projects. Just say yes so that we can we can say that, look, small little company did better than big company. Well, I don't know that it's actually a company. I'd have to go back and look. It just seemed like it was a group of volunteers that banded together to okay. make a cool game. Even this better. isn't the first time that's happened, though, because there are folks that made their own version of Journey to the Center of the Hawkthorn, which is an episode from season three of Community where they have to, in show, go play a video game so that Pierce can get his inheritance. It's like the 8-bit episode of Community. There are people that actually made Journey to the Center of the Hawkthorn as an 8-bit playable game, which is out there also as a fan-supported initiative. Well, I look forward to finding your review when you play it. Fair enough. And lastly in our news, uh, actually, before we get there, SP, let, let me ask you this. Ask. Why do I not own a telescope? Probably because you don't care about astronomy? No, it's because I don't have the ability to get a smart telescope. Well, now that is changed. <gasps> what? Is that the news article that you've brought today? <gasps> that is. And actually, it's been that way for a few years, but <laughs> it's been ungodly expensive. So, did you guys, were you guys aware that CES 2021 happened in virtual? All you virtual, guys know? yeah. Yeah. No, uh, I blocked CES out of my memory about four years ago. I don't think you would have missed much. <laughs> <laughs> However, this time around, you would have missed this. I saw this sto new story come across, so I checked into it. And CES has some awards for like best of. and. They have best of innovation, and in this particular case, it was best of innovation for digital imaging or photography. It ended up being this really cool smart telescope. Now, there was a bigger brother of this smart telescope that was out a few years ago, but now they've made it in the realm of affordability for the average person that buys a $1,000 worth of things like drones and uh, <laughs> metal detectors and... Um, and and people that are interested in EV vehicles with uh, all digital assistants and glass cockpits and 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 personal telescopes now too. So it, you know that's that's pretty good. Uh, before the holidays, I mentioned a few telescopes and buying guides, both in our Discord server and I believe I mentioned that here on the show to check out. And I check it out every year around the holiday time period because it seems like a good time to buy one. They, there's a lot of good sales and. It's that time of year where people are thinking about astronomy anywhere. And just for me personally, it's become a hot topic around the office. If there was a water cooler around the office, this would definitely be water cooler talk. Question for you, by the way, before you continue. Yes. So would you be using your telescope to look at the galaxy? So it might be galactic water cooler talk. It could be considered galactic water cooler talk. OK, cool. I just thought I'd check with you on that. Yes, yes. But it, <laughs> By the way, good, that's called good. fan service for those of you who get that reference. That was very felonious. <laughs> There's at least one person in our live chat right now that would get that reference. Anyway, over the past six months or so, we've been talking about this in relation to low light photography, the cameras in our cell phones and the apps. We talked about the apps a, a few weeks ago that you can get on your 
phones, your iOS phones or your Android phones, and combine that with photography. Uh, considerations for astronomy now in, in telescopes that I'm looking at are usually connected with things like price, imagery capability, and I believe I mentioned this on the show if I didn't, smart interoperability with your phone is always high on my list, which drives up the price, uh, to include uh, tablets as well, and definitely active optic tracking. I really enjoy that, especially if you're taking long exposure photographs. The active tracking really helps. And that's what the big telescopes do. They, they do active tracking, even the space telescopes like Hubble. Yeah, Hubble does active tracking because it's got the gyroscopes, which allow it to switch through the sky. Anyway, a few years ago, Veonis, which is a French startup company, debuted a very pricey Stellina smart telescope. It was about $4,000. The Stellina, therefore, is outside the price range of most home hobbyists, including me. I'm just not going to spend $4,000 on something like that. But there were many astrology buffs and astronomy buffs that acquired one. And the results have been, pardon my pun here, stellar. They really have been good. If you take a look at any picture, that has been taken by the Stellina and that has been posted online. They are phenomenal. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And we'll get into those reasons in a little bit. But a few months ago, the honest kickstarted a smaller brother of the Stellina called the Vespera, V-E-S-P-E-R-A. And they took it to the virtual 2021 CES. So they didn't actually take it, but they had it on their website. And I, you know what? I don't even know how virtual CES is working, but it was part of virtual CES 2021. It won the best of innovation award for digital imaging or photography. It has a price of about $1,500, although I've seen ways that you can get it about $1,000. It becomes slightly more affordable. Now, this telescope, it's portable, it's small, it can definitely fit in a school backpack. It has Bluetooth capability to connect with your phone or your tablet. It can actively track on its own any object in space. It's got a four-hour battery. It has the best Sony low-light sensor that is available on the market today, which is very important when you're looking up at the sky. It uses advanced digital photography combination techniques that we're seeing on the latest iPhones and the Pixels and all, all the latest phones to make the best image possible. Basically, it takes several different photographs and combines it into one really cool photograph. And to be honest with you, it looks a lot like Eve from WALL-E. Eve! <laughs> it's impressive, if you ask me, and I definitely want one. And basically, it's got three tripod legs that you just stick out you put it in the ground you link it up with your phone you get the gps coordinates it takes a image of the sky to make sure it's pointed in the right direction and it just you say where to point it and it's got a library of things that you can point it at and it will just stare at it and give you great photographs i think this is the the future of astronomy and at least on a a personal level and it's pretty pricey but Gosh, I this is something that I I definitely go out every night. I got a chance to use, so I think it's pretty neat. Two things on this: number one, I think you should remind yourself that you have a semi-successful 
uh, YouTube channel called Gonna Geek Gear that we all contribute to that uh, maybe you should try to leverage because I think it would fit great into our target audience. Maybe you get a sample product. You should you should reach out to them. I, uh, I will attempt to reach out to them. Yes. Uh, secondly, the, here's the most important question. Can I use it in the same way that I have used my telescope before, which is to peer on my neighbors? First of all, do you really have a telescope? No, I don't. I was making a joke. Okay. But Good. if I because, did. Because if you did, I would find a way to get into your neighborhood Facebook group <laughs> and inform everybody who the peeping Tom was. You know no, what? But he, has, he has a periscope that comes out of his roof. <laughs> Stephen just pushes his chair to the side and goes <laughs> and pulls the periscope down. and Kids, take the wheel. Dad's got to use the periscope. <laughs> Uh, no, seriously, I hope that one day you get something like this. I would love to hear what your thoughts were on it. Yeah, apparently, you know, the bigger brother out there, which has bigger optics and it would have older sensors on board and, and older uh, ability to track and stuff like that. But it is a, a bigger, more capable telescope and it has done phenomenal things. Now, one thing I, I would worry about is that people would just go out to their backyards in the middle of the light pollution and, and think they would get as good of pictures as they would if they were in a darker location. Right. So I would definitely want to take this somewhere. I wouldn't want to do it out of my backyard. I would, if you're in a subdivision or in a city, I would want to take this somewhere where you would have lower light pollution so that you could get the optimal effects from it, especially since it's smaller. But just think of this in terms of a really, really, really big smartphone camera because that's really what it is it's a smartphone camera with all the great optics in there it's just got bigger optics even though it's not huge it's it's bigger optics and then they do the same digital processing on board to get you those better pictures the same digital processing that's done on you guys's uh, pixel buddy phones with the astro astro astrophotography mode excuse me i haven't had a chance to play with it yet because it's too much light pollution where i am but there's some really cool stuff that's coming out there to kind of make astronomy more accessible and easier for folks to get into. One of which was they put the cool astronomy mode on the phones and everyone's like, oh, that's a cool feature. And the photos that came out of it were great. But even simpler, going back to like the advent of the smartphones was some of the apps they put on there that based off your GPS and camera, you could put it up there and it would like start identifying stars and stuff for you. There's some really cool yeah. stuff that's out there right now. And this is a cool advancement. Yes, it's a niche product. Not everyone's going to want it, but it's really slick. And I could see a lot of people having fun with it, especially folks who are big into amateur astronomy because it makes your life a little bit easier with all you're having to lug around or people that want to get into it because like, oh, this is just another tool in my bag that connects to my devices. This is awesome. Let's let, let's have Sherman set the way back machine to actually forward in time. And let's go fast forward to 2025. The first, second, third starship is actually on the way to Mars. Wouldn't it be great to be able every night to go out somewhere and take a look at where that starship is as it gets closer and closer to Mars in relation to other astro objects out there? It, and because it's stainless steel, it reflects light like a mother. So it's just going to be capable of being tracked like that from home telescopes like this. This yeah. is going to be big in a few years. So if you want to wait a couple of years, I mean, if that's your goal, ultimate goal, wait a couple of years until the price maybe comes down or maybe there's more options out there for this in, in, in a lower price range and grab something in advance of, of these missions, that would be great. And 
if you want to do it for the moon, uh, the missions to the moon for Artemis or whatever, you, you're going to have to grab one a little bit earlier. So I, there's unlimited number of stuff that you can do, but I really think the excitement over that first trip to Mars is really going to push a lot of this consumer goods. Like yeah. This. yeah. Uh, before we take the uh, time travel machine back, while we're still in 2025, can I just look something up? Yeah, stock prices. Uh, no, looks like uh, they still have not fixed Cyberpunk 2077 yet either. Still not fixed. I figured he'd be going for the sports <laughs> almanac so he could take it back with him. <gasps> just, just like is, Br- is Brady still playing? Is he winning uh, more Super Bowls? That's what he'd be worried about. All right. Well, that's going to take us to the end of the show. Before we go, Chris, is there anything that you would like to plug or promote? Just a friendly reminder, we do have a lot of live content on the Gunna Geek Network. So if you're over on Geeks.Live where we stream this, just scroll the page down a little bit. You can see a calendar of all of the upcoming live content. So please go check out some of those other shows and tell them that we sent you. SB? We are covering WandaVision on Legends of S.H.I.E.L.D. right now. And we're doing that 5 p.m. Eastern Time every Sunday. We just did the first two episodes since the first two episodes dropped on Friday. We did the first two episodes yesterday and we look forward to doing the next seven episodes. I thought it was a six episode season. I was corrected as I often am during the <laughs> podcast by my two co-hosts. I said, no, 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 SP. We're not, we don't have four weeks of this. We have seven more weeks of this. So I'm really excited about that. Oh, so it's nine episodes total. That's what they were saying. Oh, <laughs> Uh, first off, I was singing the WandaVision theme in my head because that's a great theme. Uh, Which one? Uh, exactly. The second one. There was two I, I think of the them. second yeah. one. I think I'm thinking, thinking the second one. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, second, I have to say, uh, I really look forward to seeing where they go with WandaVision. Uh, definitely blindsided a lot of people. 100% can understand why people would feel that way if they didn't look into it. And uh, I'm curious to see where it goes. And I'm looking forward to the ride even though uh, it looks like it might be a better binge product, but we'll find out. We'll see. We will see. I, I like it. You I won't know, go I, spoilers, but having a weekly podcast, I like the ability just to stop and, and talk about it. Yeah. Because all the other shows that have released that have released all in one bucket, it's really hard. Like the, the whole Defenders Netflix universe, that was one of the reasons why we didn't really cover it when it came out and covered other things. Because we knew we could always go back and binge it, and it was just all released in a binge. This is done on a weekly basis, and I, I'm really enjoying that on the streaming services. Even Discovery, you know, was like that, and I, I think it's better. But for episode 362 of the official GunnaGeek.com show, I'm Stephen John Drew saying, sing along with me, Wanda Vit. No, I won't do it. We're going to be taken down. I'm Chris Farrell, and I still don't care about the Snyder Cut. MSP, come on, send me your uh, demo telescopes. I will test them out for the Guinea Geek Gear channel. He'll do it, 100%. Bye. I will. Bye. Thanks for checking out another episode of the official GunnaGeek.com show. If you like the show, please give us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or a thumbs up on YouTube. You can always join us for our live recording sessions, which stream Mondays at 8.45 p.m. Eastern at www.geeks.live. And remember, you can find our full back catalog at gunnageek.com forward slash show. 
If you're itching for more geeky content, check out other shows on gunnageeknetwork.com. Voice work was by Emily Prokop of the Story Behind podcast. That's it for this episode. We hope to see you back again next week.